and it's net zero carbon, but that yeah. might not be net zero water use or net yeah. zero nutrient pollution or a few of these other issues which contribute to whether it should be considered carbon neutral. Our guest today is Professor Michelle Waycott, plant systematist at the University of Adelaide, which makes her the perfect person to guide us into the expanding world of carbon credits. There isn't anything that's structured at the moment or formal. It's largely self-proclamation, but essentially around carbon credits or the way carbon has been used in that business is very much about the way they choose to market it. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're going under the hood of Australia's carbon offset scheme to understand the different types of projects that come under this banner. Join us as we grow our understanding from what a carbon credit is to how we can be sure the credits we buy are really delivering on Australia's net zero goals. This is The Discovery Pod. Michelle, welcome to The Discovery Pod. Fabulous to be here. Like you're Professor of Plant Systematics at the University of Adelaide and Chief Botanist in the Botanic Gardens and State Herbarium for South Australia. And you must have a pretty good insight into the the level of interest in carbon and new biodiversity areas. What is it about carbon? It's obviously linked to the climate and climate change cycle. But why why are we so concerned about the emission and then uh, fixing or sequestration about carbon? Tell us a little bit about that, that kind of carbon dynamic. The story with carbon is about how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. Yeah. And the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the more we're headed towards this global greenhouse effect they Mm. talk about where things will heat up and that pushes the whole global ecology into a different mode. We, we, we hear talking about ice caps melting and, you know, as temperatures go up, things are going to melt and that destables our weather cycle. So it's all about providing as much carbon as possible that's not in the atmosphere but is available for processes that are, are neutral to atmospheric carbon but let us also live our life, let the planet live its life. Mm. Plants and animals can grow and and go through their life cycles and do their thing, but not too much of it end up in, in the air. So we, we release carbon, you know, through the burning of fossil fuels and uh, so typically from energy production and transport, you know, we're still in net positive release of carbon at the moment. So apart from stopping doing that, <laughs> how do we move carbon into those processes that aren't kind of atmospheric or damaging? So the idea is to get as much carbon as possible back into plant biomass in particular. That's right. It's all lived. about plants, isn't it's it? It's all yeah. about plants. Yeah. And you want it in plant biomass that's going to persist for a long time yeah. but still have a, an important function where possible. Yeah. So long-lived trees produce timber that can have other functions such as you know, furniture. But in reality, the most important thing is that they create these structures that persist for decades and centuries, not years or days in some cases, if you 
talking about a fast-growing organism. So it's about fixing it into a place that's going to stay there for a long time. And you've also presumably got the option of longer-term storage into soils and ocean seabeds and uh, various things. So yep. that still is also, there's this kind of an organic route towards that as well, isn't it? You're kind of using plants on land and sea to access those kind of longer term storage solutions as well. Yes, one of the major global stores of carbon is actually the deep sea ocean beds where yeah. carbon ends up getting falling all the way down the pathway to, to end up on the seabed there through detritus and dead animals and dead structures that live for a long time and end up there. So there's lots of ways carbon can be taken out of the atmospheric cycle. Mm. Uh, there are places where they just simply bury carbon. They put it into the soil profile and that keeps it out of the atmosphere for a period of time. The problem with that, though, is that if the soil then gets disturbed to the level at which it's been buried, then it becomes available to the air again. So we want a multiple range of strategies, lots of different things that can work together to fix this carbon and keep it out of the air. We're hearing a lot about carbon and carbon credits as options for decarbonisation that big business are really interested in. But are all carbon credits equal, or do we run the risk of some greenwashing in this space? How exactly does this system work? Well, first of all, carbon credits are, are not equal. Much like plants have different amounts of carbon in them depending on whether they're a small herb or a very tall eucalypt tree. So carbon credits are going to reflect the different types of carbon sources and carbon sinks that they have and also how advanced the carbon initiatives really are because some of them are very new and we don't really know in the long term how successful they're going to be. Also, some of them are a concept rather than actual on-the-ground activities, on-the-ground carbon sinks. So we really need to know all about those, what type of carbon it is, how advanced it is, how long it's been there and is it actually happening at all? And yeah. they're all part of the story. All part of the story. And I, I guess for, you know, a, a company that's that's seeking to decarbonise, you know, so they can go around and change their light bulbs, they can uh, switch over to renewable energies. So they're not consuming that carbon mm -hmm. in their everyday business. But the problem is that they're still consuming carbon in other areas, you know, the furniture that they buy and various other products that they consume. So you can't completely decarbonise a company by moving just to renewable energies. So there's this other carbon that then needs to be offset with these kind of biological carbon sources. So where do companies go for those kind of carbon sources to offset? Well, there's a whole range of different carbon markets. There's a international carbon markets where you can contact international providers of offsets and they have certain number of carbon offsets per dollar that they'll provide and how well 
that works is depending on the source of, of that carbon offset. So it might be a tree plantation in Africa or it might be buried carbon where waste is taken and buried deep in the ground and that's not likely to come up unless it actually gets dug up. So that can be a carbon offset that can be one of these things that people try to use. Local carbon offsets are, are very much about implementing projects and becoming yeah. a partner in a project. And in Australia, there is a carbon offset scheme, but the formalisation of that is a process that's still underway to get dug up. So that can be a carbon offset that can be one of these things that people try to use. Local carbon offsets are, are very much about implementing projects and becoming yeah. a partner in a project. And in Australia, there is a carbon offset scheme, but the formalisation of that is a process that's still underway. And the way those carbon offsets can provide a company trying to become carbon neutral or carbon net zero really depends on which of those projects that you get involved with. So Australia's carbon offset scheme that Michelle is talking about is designed to tip the scales towards a net zero future. Carbon credits are a unit of value within this scheme. Officially, they're called Australian Carbon Credit Units, or ACUs for short, and they're issued by the Clean Energy Regulator to businesses that run carbon abatement projects. One ACU for one tonne of carbon dioxide stored or avoided. And there are lots of different forms these projects can take. And carbon credits can offer a valuable income stream to landholders. There have been a lot of what they call savannah burning projects related to carbon and greenhouse gas emissions that allow people on large tracts of country through improved fire management activities to gain carbon credits. By 2030, carbon farming could contribute up to $8 billion to the Queensland economy. And it's happening now. The Native Conifers Carbon Sink Land Restoration Project in far north Queensland was the first in a statewide scheme to to generate Australian carbon credits. The gases from landfill make John Felzon's company, LMS, good money. A lot of it by reducing their effect on climate change in return for lucrative carbon credits. Since the 31st of December 2012, the Clean Energy Regulator has issued 122,881,923 ACUs for various projects. These ACUs can either be sold back to the government to help achieve net zero targets will be put on the open market for companies who want to offset their own carbon emissions. This creates a complex marketplace that has carbon abatement at its heart. So let's dive a little deeper into the many projects that make up this scheme. So not all carbon is equal, and some of those uh, carbon credits can be into tree plantings, different, trees, some can be better plantings than others, some can be sinking carbon into the ground, and some can be projects that haven't yet started, I guess. Yes, and there's a really big push at the moment in the blue carbon space. Mm. And, and what's blue carbon? Blue carbon is carbon associated with the coastal or marine environment. And it's called blue carbon because it's associated with water. Yeah. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Nothing more technically complex. It no. Just, it's, it's blue <laughs> stuff in the ocean. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The trick with the ocean is it's a massive carbon sink. You know, most of the globe's carbon is actually associated with the ocean. We all learn about that from when we were very young. 
But what's happening now is it's also the place where most people live. Majority of the world's population occurs along our coastlines. And in living there, we also disturb those environments. So the carbon footprint of, of coastlines has decreased due to urbanisation and industrial developments. And so what we're trying to do now is say, okay, these are great places. We could try to invest in putting carbon back, so replanting mangroves or seagrasses and try to create a more long-term carbon sink in those places. There's other benefits from that, of course, coastal protection, habitat for biodiversity. It increases things like fisheries. It's a whole range of secondary and, and tertiary effects that come out of having it. So so there's it's a win 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 as long as you can get the blue carbon uh, offsets up and running. And Australia's been leading the way in many aspects of blue carbon development. So we're just on the edge of developing a national policy to be implemented that blue carbon can be used in the offset schemes. At the moment, you can only do it the same way we would do any tree plantation type projects. Yeah. But the net blue carbon offsets for things like seagrasses are much greater than forests uh, for because the, the carbon burials are longer term. What? Seagrasses are better than forests? Absolutely. Okay, per <laughs> hectare. I just acknowledge the fact I'm a, I like seagrasses. So. And I like forests. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you're, you're kind of introducing this this idea of kind of carbon plus. Mm. So it's not just about the carbon sequestration and maximizing carbon, but also the, these kind of biological solutions also bring these other benefits. I mean, the, you know, these are kind of, there's a concept of ecosystem services as well, isn't it? So as soon as you put those species back, into that landscape, you don't only get the carbon sequestration, but as you say, you get coastal protection, you get return of biodiversity back. Why would you invest in that space? What's the benefit and what's the motivation for kind of supporting the carbon plus kind of projects? Well, think of the difference between a carbon burial project where literally you take some dead carbon product charcoal or something like that and put it under the ground and then cover it over and that's all you've got. Literally all you're ever going to get is (laughs) dead things in the ground. Maybe in 50 million years with a lot of pressure and time you get you know some petroleum some diamonds. Yeah, or diamonds <laughs> but um, you're gonna have to wait a long time exactly yeah, yeah. and <laughs> the long-term benefits yeah. are simply just that the carbon's been locked away yeah. the alternative is to grow trees particularly trees that have a very long-lived fixed carbon source like trunks and the deep roots that are woody and those kinds of trees are fixed carbon for their life. And then if they've died, their timber can then be part of a long-term carbon pool just as you know timber lying around on the ground or stored in some way. So you've got a, a very long-term reservoir of carbon then. And then in top of that, when you have a biological community that's formed around the presence of trees, you then get the other benefits of having all of the insects and invertebrates, other invertebrates. You get the production of oxygen for the atmosphere through the fixation process, a stabilisation of soils, which is a massive problem in, in Australia, for example. A lot of our soils keep blowing away every year and the more of these 
you know, tree plantations or carbon fixed station plantings, we get that benefit as well. We get oxygenation of soils as well through the roots being there. Mm. And we also get potentially secondary products from the trees. We get the fruit off them, we get flowers off them, we get the insects that might pollinate them and they can produce honey. We get other things that are all beneficial to to the community. So there's a whole range of those secondary benefits. And the accumulative effect of that is the net benefit can be orders of magnitude greater overall than just putting the carbon under the ground. And, they, and again, you know, planting trees, you'll, you get a public good, a, a kind of global good of carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. But trees on your property give you those direct benefits at a local level on your property as well. So the landholder actually gets that benefit directly back from planting those trees. So surely that's got to be a motivation. And I guess also what we're starting to see federally, you know, the Plebiscite government have just announced a new carbon credit or carbon certificate scheme, which they're still to work out. But presumably these kind of schemes that uh, support the planting of native habitats for biodiversity outcomes, the investment in these projects can really stack up. I think another benefit in addition to the cumulative benefits in themselves and the local benefits Mm -hmm. is essentially the community of practice, that it's the right thing to do to replace lost biodiversity through mechanisms that encourage the return of, of other biodiversity. Yeah. And that starts to create more of the the long-term benefits to the environment that you start seeing with, you know, corridors of connectivity for species that you may not think you're trying to get back, you know, animals that might need to roam a lot, but also you can start to create new ecosystems that match the landscape of where these plantings occur. So there's a whole range of other things that can come out of it. In addition to that, if we're clever about it, we can start to use these plantings to encourage the return of species that have become really restricted through yeah. restoration actions as well. Yeah. And or that, locally extinct as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and South Australia has a really interesting history with very long-term land clearing and now an incredible focus and effort on trying to return species to those areas that had been cleared in back in the 1800s even. And so we've got this great opportunity to get multiple benefits out of doing that kind of work. As we introduce the idea of projects that are not just carbon neutral, but carbon positive or carbon plus, we can begin to understand why some approaches to carbon abatement are more worthy of their accus than others. But remember that Michelle says the scheme still needs to be formalised. In Australia, there is a carbon offset scheme, but the formalisation of that is a process that's still underway. Turns out not everyone agrees on the type of projects that are accu worthy. People are taking it upon themselves to find out, well, I need to get find one with integrity. I need to find carbon credits with integrity. So they're doing that investigative work themselves. But yeah, it'd be much better if we all had a standard that we could rely on and trust. He and other industry bosses have signed letters saying some of the gas would have been destroyed anyway. So those credits are bogus. If the market doesn't have integrity, it'll crash. An environmental market without integrity is not an environmental market, it's a rort. 
and I feel that Australia's carbon market is just that. Australia Institute research showed that 25% of carbon credits in Australia are not actually additional. It was activity that was going to happen anyway. It's really important that the carbon market in Australia has integrity because these are the offsets that some big companies are using to account for their harmful pollution. So the system's not perfect, but what steps can be taken to help companies and consumers know which accus to buy? All right, so Michelle, you've convinced me. I want to go out and buy some of those uh, things tomorrow. I want to make sure that when I fly with Qantas and I tick that box that I want my flight to be carbon neutral, does money flow out of that process? And wh wh where does it go? Those kinds of carbon offsets go into a pool of funds that that business decides how to invest. And yeah. usually it'll invest in one of these international carbon offset schemes. Specifically, they will try to maximise the number of carbon offset points or credits that they get for the dollars that they bring in. So, so in general, there's this global pool of those offsets. And what's of concern is, depending on how valid the company that you invest with is in their investigation of the actual on-the-ground offsets, we really don't know how important and useful the long-term value of that is. So it's still a little bit everyone working it out for themselves and there are some places that are trying to get on top of that, but they're, yeah, everyone has their own ideas. So not all carbon is equal. Is there a kind of certification scheme that we can start to look out for? And how do consumers navigate the kind of minefield that, that's out there? Well, the shorter answer is <laughs> there isn't anything yeah. that's structured at the moment yeah. or formal. It's largely self-proclamation. There are small groups some of the fisheries have got together and they have a, a certification scheme for the type of catches that they have. And some of sectors of agriculture have done a good job of communicating whether or not their products are, are produced in certain ways. But essentially around carbon credits or the way carbon has been used in that business is is very much about the way they choose to market it. And we've, we're in that area where it's very uncertain as to what the right way to communicate it is. Yeah. Is it about are you genuinely net zero? And as we started out within this discussion, that's really hard to work out. Yeah, what is net zero? Yeah, what yeah. is net zero? Is it just carbon or is it carbon yeah. and biodiversity or yeah. is it these other impacts yeah, as yeah, well? Yeah. yeah. And it's net zero carbon, but that yeah. might not be net zero water use or net yeah. zero nutrient pollution or a few of these other issues which which contribute to whether a, it should be considered carbon neutral. Yeah. So there's a whole range of questions around that, which I think we've got to grapple with and, that, and we're in that space right now. But in addition to that, there are some companies that are starting to communicate more how they run their business and that's what we've got to seek more of. Essentially what we should be asking for is that if a company says I'm carbon neutral, what have you done literally to do that? And it shouldn't require digging through a 300 page annual report into the budget to look at all the budget lines <laughs> that may or may not have been the actual expenditure on, you know, carbon neutral product investments. Mm -hmm. So I really think that's one of the things we should be doing. We should also be saying, this is what the standard is. Carbon neutral means you have to do these things. Yeah. And at the moment, that's really up to the company to decide largely what that means. Yeah. So it's a work in progress is the way to describe it, I think.
While the intentions behind Australia's carbon offset scheme are good, the system is currently being weakened by a lack of trust and transparency. It's an issue that reminds me of our earlier discussion with Professor Melissa Nursey-Bray about greenwashing, where companies give the impression they're doing more for the environment than they actually are. So I want to delve more into this idea of certification and why constructing stronger frameworks for regulation could take the scheme from work in progress to fully functioning system. So we've got, you know, we've got a developing area of supply of carbon credits of different and varying qualities. We've got a, a kind of a social license kind of framework around companies where now companies are increasingly being expected to do the right thing. And it doesn't just fall into a compliance area. You know, some of those areas go up to board level and share prices <laughs> can vary depending on what a company does in this space. So you're getting very real kind of pressure coming through from a consumer base. But yeah, it's, uh, it's that transparency of supply. How do you know companies are doing the right thing? Those claims that are made and the, the expectation and the delivery of targets is really then the, the critical area. You talked a little bit about some of the, the standards and certifications that are out there. You talked about the marine area, but you've also had, you know, forestry for a long time has had FSC and there are other ones like PFC as well. So yeah, FSC basically means that uh, a, a wood product comes from a forest that is sustainably harvested. So the uh, company that's, that's undertaking the harvest of trees uh, undertake to replant trees once the wood products have been harvested and do that within a, within a certain period of time and uh, undertake practices that are going to minimise the impact on the forest. So through that sustainable forestry, you're also maintaining the biodiversity assets within, within that forest. But yes, it says nothing about the carbon practices. So it's just talking about the sustainability of that resource, that that resource will then be available for future generations. And it's harvested in a way that it will be available for future generations. So one of the interesting things about sustainable production versus yeah. carbon offsets or carbon sequestration in the broader sense is, in general, the assumption is that carbon sequestration is very long term. It's not the length of time a tree takes to grow to maturity, it's that plus what happens with it after that is that the carbon still stays largely in the tree form in yep. the wood. Yep. And even in the wood products, I mean, if they're used in the building industry, exactly. they can be there for hundreds of years. Yeah. Yep, yep. And some carbon offset schemes are using the sustainable forestry branding as a way of giving carbon credits for the production of timber. However, the evaluation of those timber products in their long-term carbon sequestration state is what's not being done equitably or, or even following a similar method. So if you've got carbon credits that come from some sustainable forestry practices, you may not in fact be investing in long-term carbon sequestration only essentially the life of that timber production cycle hmm. because you literally, when you when you knock the trees down, one of the things that happens is the carbon can start to be released again then as the, the rest of the product 
gets degraded through organic cycling processes. So what we need to be sure of is if you're using sustainable forestry carbon offsets, that they are the ones that are being done with that long-term view. Forestry production is probably the easiest thing to become a carbon offset genuinely because what you're doing is you're taking usually largely bare ground and putting trees in and trees take a long time to grow. And as you said, Andy, the tree products themselves can be long-term, especially if you're in in a building. But they're not as long-term as the carbon offset schemes really require because it should be much longer than that. So we need to be very careful going forward that particularly in putting tree plantations in, those long-term goals are very much embedded in the practice of managing that offset. So it needs to be that if a tree dies, what happens to it? How are you going to maintain that net offset balance there? So there's a whole range of questions around how that will work in the future because at the moment very few of the plantation-style offsets are old enough to to be getting to the point where you're cutting them down and replacing them. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that dynamics of of those kinds of industries has to be thought through and and how they're implemented. And there's some thought going into that in the community out there. But other industries where carbon sequestration might occur, for example, a revegetation as opposed to forestry, they're more likely to have those long-term benefits because what you're trying to do is recreate a community that has that ongoing in perpetuity, quote-unquote, outcome. And yeah. so they're the ones that are getting the highest offset sort of carbon credit ratings yep. at yep. the moment. So are we seeing a single measure come through or not yet? We're still seeing that each of those different areas, aren't we, uh, yeah. develop? And that's probably realistic going forward anyway Yeah. because we are going to see parts of Australia where farmers are choosing to put, you know, revegetation in as a part of a carbon offset than trying to continue to produce other agricultural products on marginal lands or lands where the trade-offs are too high. So we're already seeing that as a really big move in certain parts of Australia. We're also seeing tree plantations go in. And, you know, I grew up in a town called Albany in Western Australia on a farm which when my parents were getting to an age where they were thinking, you know, do we retire or not, their land was bought by a, a tree planting company and a big bluegum tree plantation was put in. Mm. Now, that wasn't done in a way that I would classify as sustainable, <laughs> but the idea that highly productive land could have value as a tree plantation was very real and lots of parts of Australia, particularly where there's relatively high rainfall and lots of land, they've been putting these plantations in everywhere. Yeah. Now, there are problems with that that we were talking about earlier, the the idea that large tree plantations go into areas which didn't have trees on them before. All of a sudden, you've got a change in, you know, the water balance. So there, are, there can be other effects of putting trees in, you know, literally overnight and trees that grow very quickly like blue gums do. But they're also very positive in that it means that we're not having to chop down our old growth forests for those kind of products. So if we can find a way of those kind of plantations also having these long-term carbon sequestration outcomes and lead to, you know, genuine offsets, then that would be another benefit of them as well. But we need to do some work with the intermediate stage of these kinds of activities to get them right. 
So look, you've, you've painted a great picture, I think, of what can be done. But let's bring it back to your area and some of your research, because you're a marine botanist, a marine plant person. And so what do you see as one of the, the kind of major challenges that you could help solve through your research? Imagine you got a, a grant tomorrow for 10 years of an unfettered funding to do whatever you wanted. How would you make a difference uh, with, with, with your research? So one of the really interesting things in the blue carbon development area is understanding the trade-offs of how different types of habitats are able to give those long-term carbon sequestration outcomes. So, for example, we know that seagrass meadows, such as we have in Gulf of St. Vincent and Spencer Gulf, they are some of the most highly valued carbon sources in the world. Up in Spencer Gulf, you have seagrass beds that can go down, you know, eight metres deep, Mm -hmm. and they've taken thousands of years to accumulate. Mm -hmm. And so that carbon, we have to protect at all costs because if we lose it, you've got to work really, really hard to recover the offset of what you've just lost. So we have a duty of care to protect whatever our carbon sequestration footprint is right now. So that's the number one priority is number protect, one. Protect, protect that. Yeah, yeah. Because if we keep losing it, it's harder to get back. It's probably 10 times harder to get back. And particularly with these slow-growing seagrass species like we have off the southern Australia, they're, they're some of the largest seagrass meadows in the world. They're unique to this environment and they're incredibly uh, well adapted to this region. So, mm. so it's a really important place to protect for many, many reasons. So protect, number one. If we lose areas, we have to work hard to get them back. And we've got projects running in South Australia, for example, at the moment, trying to restore seagrasses off the the Adelaide coast here, where we've lost heaps of seagrass over the last 70 years, largely just due to the Adelaide city developing and changes to the coast as a result. And when you lose them, getting them back can take decades because they're slow growing. And as we all know, those of us who live here, the energy off the coast here is very high. You get big waves and you get storms. And every time that happens, it puts pressure on these coasts. Now, getting the seagrasses back here means we not only get the carbon sequestration benefits, but we protect our coastline better. It means we have to pump less sand around the place. We can have nicer beaches and the way we can interact with the the fishing industry, for example, would be improved. All of those things can get better if we get the seagrasses back. So that would be uh, restoration or, or rehabilitation in this case would be the next most important thing. And then the third thing would be where can we then get the next best bang for the buck in terms of carbon sequestration or blue carbon areas in the state? And we've got over 3,500 kilometres of coastline. There's a reasonable uh, amount of that that's had various disturbances happen to it. So where can we find other places where we can put effort into restoring it with um, mangroves or salt marshes or seagrasses, all of which give some of these carbon benefits. And so that's what I would focus on because they not only bring back 
habitat, they provide all these secondary benefits and we have really diverse species that grow in and around these habitats here in South Australia. Well, what a vision that we need to deliver on. So Michelle, thanks very much for being on the Discovery Pod today and giving us a real insight into you know the opportunities, I think, for carbon credits and the things to avoid as well. And what are the other opportunities for really helping restore and recover many of our uh, global ecosystems? Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andy. Australia's carbon offset scheme is a key tool for government to deliver our national net zero targets. So it's important to make sure the projects within the scheme are as effective as possible. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us on today's episode. If you found this chat interesting, we recommend you listen to other episodes on greenwashing and blue carbon. There's no doubt these topics are going to become more important. So now is the time to build up your knowledge base. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, rate us five stars. And while you're at it, why not share this episode with your friends and family? In our next episode, we're learning how to lure oysters onto the dance floor for reef restoration with Dr. Dom McAfee. Dom's research is a great example of where curiosity can lead you to make real-world impacts, in this case engaging communities and restoring precious coastline ecosystems. In the meantime, if you have a topic you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast.adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?